today at back into we're going to jump back into Jesus parables and uh, the one we're going to be looking at is a famous one from Luke chapter 10 uh, it's called the good Samaritan the good Samaritan and some of you all have heard this story before and um, maybe you've um, maybe you've heard it a lot but I think that it is one whose point ought to be continually renewed in our minds. And so, without any further ado, I'd invite you to stand and follow along as I read uh, from Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 uh, to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it starts this way. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, our Father, uh, these stories of Jesus are sharp-edged. And they make a point that if we're bold enough to take them seriously, is unavoidable and convicting. And Father, we pray that we would not be like the lawyer in this story and try to justify ourselves and look for loopholes around what you call us to do. But Father, to hear your word and to love it as your word and to seek to obey it and conform ourselves to it. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So this, this section of Scripture begins with a question. And notice, it's not just any question, it is the question. The only one that matters. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And you'll notice as you look at it, that the guy who asks it has it right in some ways, in that in the same way that an inheritance is a gift from your earthly father, so eternal life comes to us as a gift received from our Heavenly Father. So that's why he's asking about inheriting 
eternal life. But you'll notice a couple things about the guy here in verse 25. The first thing you notice is that he is a lawyer. Uh, meaning that he is an expert in the Mosaic Law. He's a guy who knows his Old Testament backwards and forwards. And the second thing you'll notice here is that the guy's question is insincere. Do you see that? In other words, he doesn't really want to know. It says that, look at your Bible, it says, stood up to do what? To put him to the test. His reason for asking, in other words, is not to find out the answer, but to put Jesus to the test to find out if Jesus knows the correct answer. In other words, I'm going to show this guy who's, who's really got it going on and, and who knows what's what, because I am an expert in the law, and this guy is the random son of a carpenter from Nazareth. And so I'm going to put him to the test and find out if he knows the Bible. Jesus knows the correct answer. Jesus, in verses 26 uh, through 28, gives the correct answer, but he gives it in an unusual way. Have you ever had a teacher like this uh, who, um, when you ask a question in class, would respond with a question? Well, that's what Jesus does. In fact, it's the most common thing that he does. You know, if you, if you track down uh, Jesus' uh, teaching all the way through the Gospels, you find out that Jesus asked uh, a couple of hundred questions and he directly answers like eight. Because he is often trying to get to the heart of the person by asking question back when he has asked one. And uh, so Jesus says this, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, all right, smart guy, you're the expert in the law. Tell me what the law says. And so the lawyer does. And he quotes two passages. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, about loving God with all of your abilities. Love, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and soul, and mind, and strength. And he adds also from Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verse 18, about love your neighbor as yourself. And, and by the way, this is a good shorthand for the whole Old Testament law. Not just the laws themselves, the 603 commands in addition to the Ten Commandments, but to the Ten Commandments themselves. You'll notice, if you look at it, that the first four have to do with your relationship with God and putting Him first in your life. And the last six have to do with how do you interact with, deal with, treat other people. And so, not only does the Ten Commandments line out that way, but the whole structure of the Old Testament law itself lines up that way, where some of them have to do with your relationship with God, and some of them have to do with the uh, covenant community and how you live in community with other people. How do you treat them? And so this is a good summary. Love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus tells the man, hey, you've given the correct answer. You want eternal life? Do that. And you will get it. In other words, you want eternal life? Fine. Keep the entire law. 
and you'll have it. Now, some of you who are paying attention, what is the problem here? You can't really keep the law, can you? I mean, you can do the commands, at least to an external degree, but perfectly? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of y'all have ever told a lie? I'll raise my own hand. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, guess what? No eternal life for you. If the standard is we have to keep the law perfectly. How many of you have all have, have ever wanted something for yourself that belonged to your neighbor? No eternal life for you either. Okay, you, you, see what, you see the problem, right? How many of you have ever desired something? No, I really won't ask for a show of hands on this. Okay, how many of you have ever desired someone to whom you were not married? No eternal life for you. We're in deep trouble right here. And this is just three of the Ten Commandments, right? If you violate one of 613 laws in the Old Testament, no eternal life for you. Ooh. So, what does the lawyer do? He does what lawyers do. He starts looking for loopholes. <laughs> right? <laughs> He's like, huh. The lawyer's answer is the right one, but if you have any degree of self-awareness, you, you quickly are led to despairing of anyone ever obtaining life. If that's what's required by God to obtain eternal life and nobody can do that, then the only conclusion is nobody gets eternal life. Amen? So the question the lawyer ought to have asked in follow-up to this would have been, okay, Jesus, but there's got to be some other way, right? Because nobody can then inherit eternal life. Are you telling me, Jesus, that everyone is going to hell and there is no hope for anybody? Is that what you're saying? And if you ask that question, Jesus, being Jesus, will lay out the gospel for him. But that's not the question he asks, is it? Instead of the humility that faith requires, the lawyer responds with self-justification. Look at your Bible again. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right, Jesus, you asked me a question, and I answered it. Let me ask you another question. Who's my neighbor? And, and, and here's the thing. He skips over the more important question of what it means to love God completely. Do you notice that? Like he just assumes he's got that one nailed down. And he skips over that to limit the application of the bit about neighbors. Well, I think I can probably obtain eternal life myself as long as we get the definition of neighbor appropriately limited. 
that like people I like, right? People like me. It's a little bit of lawyering where you start arguing about terms, right? My, in my lifetime, probably the most famous example was the former President Clinton, who, when under questioning, asked about the definition of the word is. Right? Some of you all are old enough to remember that. But that's what this guy does. He, re, he tries to dodge like an attorney. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? Let's define our terms. I mean, what does the word neighbor mean exactly? And he's trying to escape the obvious personal application by starting an academic, legalistic discussion about the definition of the law. By the way, anybody else guilty of that sometimes? Of reading the Word of God and looking for loopholes to the obvious conviction the Holy Spirit is giving on your life? Well, it doesn't really mean that. I mean, Jesus, you don't really mean for me to do that, right? I mean, that person is horrible. And you know what? They probably are. But so are you. Right? And so am I. Jesus means what He says. Jesus doesn't immediately address the, the, the question, though. What He does is tell the lawyer a story. And here's the story. This is probably one of the most famous stories in the whole world. It's known and loved by millions of people, including millions of non-Christians, but it's still powerful. And if you look at it with me, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I have driven that road. It winds down through the, the mountains and the desert. There's all kinds of caves. They make an excellent place for bandits to hide out. And in the ancient world, bandits did. They did. And they would take advantage of travelers as they were taking that road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You drop quite a bit of elevation and go through this area. And it's well known in, in Jesus' day as being a place that would be an excellent location to get robbed in. It would be like going to the south side of Chicago after dark. Okay? Um... And so this guy has gotten attacked and robbed and stripped and beaten half to death. This is, not, this is not a shocking incident, right? This is something that commonly happens. But what is shocking is what happens next. The first person to see this poor soul lying alongside the road badly injured is a priest. He is one of the descendants of Aaron, one of the uh, leaders of worship in Jerusalem. And next, a Levite comes. And like the priest, he just passes by. Both these men walk by on the other side of the road away from the injured man. And Jesus doesn't tell us really why. I mean, maybe they were worried that they might die because maybe those robbers are still around. Maybe they're looking down at that guy and going, should have taken a guard. You know, you should have been, should have got your concealed carry so you could walk along here more safely. 
you know, and he probably he probably deserved it. He's probably walking here after dark. You know, he should have known better. Maybe they're they're worried that the guy, because he's badly injured, might die, and and while that while they're taking care of him, and then they'd be ceremonially unclean and not be unable to go back to worship. We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. But all we know for sure is that they saw a man in deep need and they kept right on walking. The person you expect to see next, if you're a Jewish person, uh, like this lawyer, is the righteous Jew. Right? Just the ordinary Jewish fellow. But Jesus does something shocking. And He makes the hero of the story, not a full-on Jew, but a Samaritan. One of the descendants of the Jews who lived in the northern kingdom, who after that kingdom was conquered by the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians brought in these people from other nations all over. And some of the Jews who lived in that area intermarried with them. And pious Jews who lived down in the south considered these people to have forfeited their Jewish identity by having intermarried with these foreigners. And they were little different than Gentiles in their mind. In fact, they might be worse. Because after all, a Gentile had no godly heritage at all. But you people gave it up. You forfeited all that. Intermarried with those foreigners. And pious Jews hated them to such a degree that if they had to go up to Galilee from the south, Uh, If you were a pious Jew, what you did was not take the short two-day walk through Samaria. What you did was you took a five-day walk around it. Hated those people. But here comes one of these hated people, this Samaritan. And what does he do? He sees the wounded man and he has compassion on him and cares and cares for him. He bandages him up. He disinfects his wounds with wine. He softens his bruises with oil. He puts him on his own mount, the Scripture says. Meaning, who's riding and who's walking? The wounded guy is riding. The guy who was formerly riding is now walking alongside, leading that donkey or that horse or that camel, whatever it is. So that the wounded guy is in comfort and he is putting in the miles. He takes into an inn, he gives the innkeeper two full days' wages as a down payment on any needed expenses, and then essentially writes a blank check to the innkeeper and says, Spend whatever is needed to care for this guy. I've still got some business to attend to. When I get back, I will pay you the remainder of whatever you've spent. Now think about this for just a second. Think about human nature. And you're the innkeeper. And someone has told you, spend whatever is needed. And I'll pay pay you when I get back. What kind of room is that guy getting? Well, he's not getting whatever is left over, right? He's getting a nice room. Maybe penthouse suite, right? Uh, How much room service is he getting? 
three meals a day minimum, right? Because somebody has just written me a blank check to take care of this fellow, right? I'm going to make sure that we that he gets adequate care. In fact, more than adequate. In fact, we might assign that guy a maid by himself just to check on him, take care of any needs that he has. Give him a direct phone down to the front desk for whatever he would need, right? He gets what kind of food does he get? The best kind we have available. And so the point is, is that despite his questionable heritage, this Samaritan showed that he understood what loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself actually meant. Despite the inconvenience to his time, despite the inconvenience to his body, to his schedule, regardless of the financial cost, ignoring the fact, by the way, that the wounded man was part of a group of people who hated him most. The Samaritan lived out the law in this situation. Amen? And he did it in not in some academic sense, but in a tangible and a sacrificial way. He didn't give in, in other words, to the lawyer's temptation to rationalize that, well, this guy isn't really my neighbor. I mean, he's a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. I don't even know this fella. He's not really my neighbor. I really don't have any responsibility here. And besides that, I'm on a trip that I really can't be late for. And in doing so, he obeys God. And that's the story. Uh, and in the last three verses of the text, we get Jesus driving home the point. Which one was a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? You notice that the lawyer cannot bring himself to mouth the words, the Samaritan. <laughs> that would have been shorter. What he says is, the one who showed him mercy. So what's the, what's the, and Jesus then says, you go and do likewise. In other words, what's the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus is telling the lawyer and he's telling us that that is the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor, but what does it mean to be a neighbor? Because everyone who crosses your path, whether you know them or not, is your neighbor. And so the call of God, in other words, is unlimited in application. And I am called as a believer in Christ to love everyone that I encounter like I love myself. How do I do that? I want you to ponder that question for a minute while I ask a couple more questions. Here's my first question. Number one, how do you think the lawyer responded? The text doesn't tell us. And I think that's because leaving this section with that question unanswered encourages us all to ponder how we will respond to the questions in Jesus' command in this text. And men and women, we dare not be like the lawyer and start looking for loopholes in God's Word. 
Here's question number two. How do you think the man who fell among robbers responded to the love he experienced at the hands of the Good Samaritan? Again, we don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us that. And it's also because parable is not necessarily about any historical person in particular. It's a story meant to illustrate a point. But I like to think that if it really happened just like this, that that poor wounded man would have gone out after he recovered patrolling the roads and driving off the bandits and helping other people that had been helped, that needed help the same way that he had been. And the reason I think that is because the only appropriate response to receiving great love and mercy is to become a dispenser of that same love and mercy to other people. Amen? You know, men and women, you and I are recipients of the greatest love ever. If you'll allow me, let me tell you the story in a slightly different way. According to the scriptures, all of us are, in a way, like that poor, wounded man. A combination of our own sin and the fallen world that we live in and Satan himself have left us stripped, wounded, beaten, and bleeding alongside the road. Half dead and abandoned. And maybe... The world wandered by and it offered us religion or possessions or pleasures of some kind or other. But like the priest and the Levite, ultimately these things all pass us by on the other side of the road and leave us still lying there, unable to help ourselves. And then Jesus comes. In fact, He not only knew what had happened to us, he knew what had happened to us and He sought us out. And when He came to us and offered to save our lives, when we trusted in the salvation that He offered, then He picked us up and He bandaged our wounds and He paid the price for our full healing and He put us in a place where we could be cared for and healed until the day when He comes back. Where's that place? Y'all look around. This is it. This is the end, if you will. Where we are recovering and healing and then serving until the King comes for us. In other words, we might understand that Jesus is loving just like the Good Samaritan and has been to every single one of us. To put it in more theological language, uh, God showed mercy to us in Christ. He saved us by His grace through our faith and He bought our healing through something tangible and very costly, His own blood. And having healed, by his, his, healed us by His love, uh, having, in other words, received by grace through faith in Jesus the very thing that the lawyer wondered how to inherit, eternal life, we are now actually capable 
of doing the impossible. Did you know that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can do the impossible. Now, I don't mean like faster than a speeding bullet, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound or anything like that. But what I do mean is something much harder, actually. That you are actually enabled, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God as a believer in Jesus Christ to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. You are healed and equipped and enabled to do that. Not in order to gain salvation. Let me be very clear on that. We don't do these things in order to get saved. But because we are saved, we are enabled to do them. To live out what the law required because we have the law written on our hearts, engraved there by the Holy Spirit, and empowered by Him to do that very thing. But the only question that remains is this one. Will we? Because it's no longer a question of ability, but a question of willingness. Will you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and put everything else subservient to that. Because this is the one thing that matters in life is your relationship with God. And then out of your love for God that results from the love you received from Him, will you love your neighbor? every needy and wounded person that you encounter. And by the way, everyone you encounter is needy and wounded, whether they recognize it and acknowledge it or not. They are needy and wounded. Will we love them as we love ourselves, regardless of whether they are like us or not? Regardless of what race they are? regardless of what color they are, regardless of how much money they have, regardless of what sex they are. Will we love them regardless of how they vote? Will we, will we love them... Now, now I'm meddling, I know. Okay, but will we love them regardless of who they are because of who Jesus has made us to be? Because Jesus calls us to love your neighbor. All your neighbor. As you love yourself. Because Jesus loved you like that. You feel me? This is what the Scripture is telling us. That because Jesus loves us like that, we are to respond to His saving love for us with that kind of love for other people. Amen? That's the Gospel call, to live out the love you've already been given by God. Not in order to inherit salvation, but because you have it. And to give mercy to everyone without exception or excuse-making or self-justifying loophole seeking. Amen? I want to do that.
If you're looking for the deep things of Scripture, you're in water over your head right now, whether you know it or not. you got to put on your big boy pants to do this. And so do I. And so I want to ask the Holy Spirit of God to give us His power. And I want you and I to be bold enough to pray the mighty prayer that God would make us people like this. So will you join me? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we sometimes think that the harder things are to understand, the deeper they are. But Father, this is not hard to understand. And we are in water deeper than we can swim in. Because Father, your love for us is deeper than the deepest ocean. It stretches further than the edges of the universe. And all of its light years. And Father, we are not worthy of any of it. But we have received it. We have inherited it from a God who loves us. Whose Son died to give it to us. And every need that we have has been met. In Jesus Christ. And Father, out of gratitude and worship to you for that, I pray that you might transform us as you are transforming us, that you might continue your mighty work in us to make us people like this. People who love all of our neighbors. All of them. Even the difficult ones. Even the people who are hard to even like. That we love them. And we sacrifice for them. Regardless of who they are, because of who you are making us to be. Father, make us such people that the world may see that you are among us. Father, we know that's true, but the world is blind to your love. And Father, we pray that you might remove the blindness in part by transforming us into people who love one another and love them with us great and powerful transforming love. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.